But as we've been approaching this Easter, we've been, uh, I've been just going through a series of questions, um, you know, the types of questions maybe, hopefully, you will face by, you know, talking with your friends, neighbors, coworkers, um, questions about, I mean, we started this series talking about uh, in this age of fake news, you know, where we, we, we realize we, it's hard to trust any of the various messages that are kind of manipulating us and speaking into our lives. Uh, we're trying to pierce through some of the fake news about Jesus. That's kind of what we're doing in, the, in this series. So we've done four weeks. We're doing four weeks. We did a first week, did Jesus really live? We looked at some of the biblical and historical sources testifying to historical attestation to the life of Christ. Uh, last week, we, we talked about did Jesus really claim to be God? And we looked at some of the, uh, the verses that, uh, you know, in the interpretive lens, through the interpretive lens in which we, we understand that Jesus, in fact, not only claimed to be God, but those who heard him, those who interacted with him, actually at times picked up stones to stone him because they understood exactly what he was claiming for himself. And, um, and what do we do with that? Either Jesus was who he said he was or he was not. And that's kind of where we left last week. Today we're asking the third question, um, did Jesus really die? And, and at first you might say, well, why is that even a question? Obviously Jesus really died. Everybody dies. I mean, pretty much death has pretty close to 100% you know, batting average. Uh, death pretty much gets us all. The only sure things in life, they say, are death and taxes, particularly in Canada. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's what I get the amens for, really. Um, but when we're asking, did Jesus really die? You know what we're really asking? Obviously, what the real question is, did Jesus really die a condemned criminal on the cross on the day that we celebrate as Good Friday? That's, that's the question. Did, did, did he die on that day in that manner? And, and even then, some may ask, why, do we, why would we ask that question? I mean, after all, we have multiple early accounts of some of the most accurate and respected ancient historians, and, and everyone who speaks about Jesus, actually almost everyone who speaks about Jesus, speaks about the fact that he was crucified in, in, in the reign of Tiberius or under Pontius Pilate. And generally speaking, when you have multiple credible, consistent sources bearing witness to the fact of someone's time or place or manner of a person's death in ancient history, we tend to accept those sources unless there's significant reason not to. But that part I just said, unless there's significant reason not to, is why some would shed doubt on this idea of did Jesus really die. And, and the reason is because there's Two historical facts that have aroused great interest from nearly everyone who looks into the historicity of the life of Jesus. And these are two facts that, that um, you know, frighten people or at least cause them some sort of level of uncomfortability. The first is the fact of the, ancient to or the empty tomb. That Jesus' body, although he was crucified in every report publicly, his body has never been found. In fact, there's a report of his tomb being empty. And the second historical fact that we have to wrestle with is that multiple people, including both who were followers of him and those who were not followers of him, multiple sorts of people attest to having seen him alive after he was supposed to have been executed. Some claim to have vivid encounters with him. Some of these encounters occurring in group settings with multiple witnesses. 
And now obviously the, the Christian explanation of those two facts, the empty tomb and the multiple eyewitness accounts of seeing him alive after he's supposed to dead, the Christian account of this is, yes, those two things point to what we believe happened is he actually, and what the people who saw him testified is that he actually, what we're going to look at next week, rose from the dead. But obviously for many people, maybe your neighbors or your classmates or your co-workers, the idea that Jesus actually raised from the dead is so unbelievable that in searching, kind of in grasping for a more reasonable explanation for this empty tomb and the appearances of Jesus, they may say, well, maybe it's more plausible that Jesus did not in fact die at all, but only maybe passed out, maybe went into a coma, but people, the point is people only thought that he had died and then saw him again alive. So, so that would explain both why the tomb is empty and both why people saw him. So, so really what we're doing today is not necessarily looking at this question of itself, but it's actually setting us up for next week when we talk about did Jesus really rise from the dead. But we have to talk about this question first. Did Jesus really die on the cross in the reign of Tiberius under Pontius Pilate? as an executed criminal. So how do we go about establishing that Jesus' death really occurred? And again, understanding the conversation, I'm not going into the historical argument. Uh, I pointed up these three guys up here. We talked about the historical argument and the facts of Jesus' life that all historians kind of agree on a few weeks ago, that he died on a cross under Tiberius. But let's talk about, how do we know he really died on that cross? And the first line of inquiry actually regards the medical implausibility of surviving crucifixion. Now, I'm not a doctor. I play one on TV. No, I don't don't even play one on TV. Uh, We have some doctors in here, right? We've got some of you doctors. I see doctor. I see uh, people studying to be uh, doctors in here as well. Actually, I don't see them. I don't see... Is Daniel here? There you are. You're back there. So you'll have to help me. In fact, some of these books might be of interest to you. There have been entire books written where doctors, or another one written by a medical examiner, uh, write, uh, look over the historical record of crucifixion, both from biblical accounts and from historical accounts, and then using what they know in their training as physicians to try to understand what effect would crucifixion have on the health and the body of the person being crucified. So these books, for example, um, the, the one on the... the the left, uh, is at, for example, St. Paul University. I skimmed and read through that this week. You guys who are doctors might get more out of it than, than I was able to get. Um, but actually, so, so some doctors are fascinated by this question. What would crucifixion do to a person? In fact, the most famous of these studies was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association in 1986, where a team of doctors, primarily from the Mile Clinic, Um, published a peer-reviewed paper about the death of Jesus Christ. Uh, Thanks, Daniel, you sent it to me because you had access to that journal. uh, But any of you students probably can can obtain it through your your university library account. And yeah, in the paper, the researchers search the biblical account and compare the biblical account to other historical accounts of crucifixion and, and speak about the effect of health. And so we're going to do that very quickly here, the medical implausibility of surviving the crucifixion. And I was actually, I was actually uh, watching an episode of The Office this week, and uh, 
Toby was talking about the Scranton Strangler, and he says, we have to start at the beginning. To talk about the crucifixion, we have to start at the beginning. But then Toby said, we have to start at the beginning. No, but we have to go before that. So, so before you even talk about the crucifixion, go back a little bit to the night before the crucifixion. For that's, that's the first kind of medical impact that this whole Good Friday moment played on Jesus, what happened actually not at the crucifixion, but the night before. The night before the crucifixion, Jesus is said to, in some scriptural accounts, in all scripture accounts, he spends the entire night praying. In all scripture accounts, he spends the entire night in anguish of the soul. In fact, he goes off to pray, he comes back, and he finds his, his disciples sleeping when he's asked them to stay awake with him and pray. He goes off and prays, finds them asleep, kind of rebukes them, goes off again to pray, comes back, finds them asleep again. He's up all night. You know, this is not just studying for an exam, you know, that I need to stay up all night. This is actually staying up all night in excruciating psychological torment, knowing of what exactly will face him the next day. And in Luke's account, Luke the doctor, in his account of this evening of agony, he writes in uh, Luke twenty-two forty-four, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And so each of these books of these doctors are, um, you know, working through what is this. And some believe, and the doctors here, uh, you don't need to correct me publicly. You can come and please talk to me afterward if there's anything I say wrong uh, medically. But some uh, have supposed that possibly Christ suffered from a rare medical condition, hemoditrosis, in which... Because of the stress on the body, uh, the, apparently the, uh, the, the capillaries constrict, and blood then is transferred to the sweat glands, emerging from the body mixed with perspiration. So some think that even before the crucifixion, even before the scourging, even before any interaction with the Roman soldiers, Jesus already may have been suffering not only some blood loss, minuscule, but at least that emotional stress and anguish that kept him up all night, leading him to be exhausted the next day, and that his body would have already been in a weakened state before the, any of the process even begins. Before Jesus' trial, probably doctors would say he was probably in very good physical condition. I mean, he didn't drive in car and sit at a desk for his life. He walked everywhere. I mean, the, one thing the Gospels account of Jesus is he walked from place to place many, many, many kilometers. And so mo most believe he was in good, robust physical condition before, uh, but by the morning of the crucifixion itself, having stayed up all night in prayer, in anguish, he probably was in a state of exhaustion, severely emotionally upset, factors that would counteract his overall physical strength. But let's go on. As in the morning hours, in the dark hour of night before sunrise, Jesus was taken, the biblical accounts, all the biblical accounts say that he was taken from the Garden of Gethsemane into a secret council of the Sanhedrin, the high court of the Jewish people. And before, and, and, and a couple things that stick out to me even from this, obviously, I mean, you can look at it from a historical kind of legal um, perspective, and some books that I have do that, where they talk about the illegality of this court meeting before sunrise. But in his answer here, he's being questioned by the high priest. In John, for example, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and teaching. 
Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and the temples where all the Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who've heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? And last week we looked at this after the high priest tore his robes because he'd heard, he says, we've heard blasphemy from his own mouth. Uh, Luke records, now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. This part, I mean, some parts of these stories, I don't know about you, but some parts of these stories are hard to even read. Much less, I mean, I can't watch, it's very hard to watch any adaptation, like video adaptation, but some of these are just hard to even read. And, and here's one of them. They blindfold him, and they keep beating him. And so they blindfold him and keep asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. And I don't know what bothers me so much about that, but maybe what it is is not only the physical abuse, but the physical abuse like connected to the mocking and the scorn, right? And here's a guy who's already been exhausted, already been praying all night, no sleep, already at, at, at his wit's end, and to not only be beating him, but then prophesy, who is it that struck you? It, it's impactful. And so he's already been roughed up by the Sanhedrin, and then the Sanhedrin brings him to Pilate. Now what we have in the account, in each of the accounts of the Gospels, is that Pilate, who's now the Roman authority, Pilate wants nothing to do with Jesus. In fact, we're told a couple different accounts of this, that Pilate tells the Jewish leaders, I, I see no guilt in him. Uh, his wife, Pilate's wife, wakes up, she's had a dream, and she says, who are, you know, this, this person who's in front of you, he's an innocent man, have nothing to do with him. And by every account, we have Pilate's uh, reticence to be involved in what he sees as just a local Jewish matter. He says, take him yourselves and deal with him. And what we have in the Gospel of John, for example, John speaks and he says, it says something about like to appease the Jews. It's, it's the idea that, that Pilate is kind of in a corner. He's been, he takes Jesus out in front of all the people and says, what would you have me do with him? And they're all yelling, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Yet Pilate can see no reason to crucify him. And so what we're given a little bit of Pilate's motive is that Pilate thinks that if he roughs Jesus up even more, takes him and publicly flogs him, that the people will, 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 there will be at least some shred of humanity in the people and they'll say, okay, that's enough. You have done enough to him. And we get only four words in the Gospel of John. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And this is where, you know, the historians... This is where the other accounts of what would happen before crucifixion, this is where this comes into play. To actually understand what a Roman flogging was. The idea that they would take a cat of nine tails, which would be like a whip, but not like the whip that Indiana Jones has, or that you'd see in the Calgary Stampede, but a shorter whip, about, you know, about yay long, with about three to five strands of leather, and in the leather would be interspeced with it a glass pieces of glass, pieces of stone, things that when you would strike it against the person's back, it would not only leave a welt, but actually would dig into the skin of the victim. And as you strike in, and then it's not only as you hit it, but then as you rip it back. 
And you can read of the accounts of what this would do to an individual, of how it would cut through the outer layer of skin, would cut down almost through the muscle to the bone, and probably from the bottom of the, of the shoulder, or the, the, the bottom of the crown of the head, probably to the lower thighs, having been stripped naked, Jesus was flogged. Some will say and some will tell you, you can read in some, some, some people's versions of understanding what's going on, is that the Jewish people had a law. The Jewish people had a law that you would not whip a person more than 40 times. And in order to be safe, they, when they were counting, they would count out 39 lashes. But this is not a Jewish flogging, this is a Roman flogging. They would have had no reason for restraint. Uh, one of the, the, the accounts, I think it was in the book that I had read, spoke that Jesus may have, as you cut through the skin, raw, made it more raw and raw and raw, some have thought that Jesus perhaps lost up to a third of the amount of blood in his body. Through this flogging. This is before you get to the crucifixion. And then I, I finally, you know, then it, it's finally mercifully this flogging is over. But then I go to the other Gospels, and there's an account in Mark and Matthew about what happens after the flogging. And again, this is unbelievable to me. The soldiers lead him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. Now the purple cloak, purple is the color of royalty. So this is mocking him. And, but you know that when you have hurt yourself or skinned your knee or something like that, and your mom may have not only put like, ah, what's that stuff? Hydrocortisone peroxide on it. But it's also that it's, if they put the, the, the gauze on it, right? They put the gauze on it and the blood begins to congeal and begins to clot into the, the gauze. Which is happening as Jesus has this purple cloth draped along his back and the back of his legs where he has just been bleeding profusely. They then, someone has the great idea in their mockery, someone has the horrific satanic idea to go and to take thorns that are growing outside, brambles that are growing outside the palace, grab some of those thorns, and we don't know exactly what species they are. Different scientists have talked about theirs different types of species of thorny branches in Israel. But someone had the thought that they'll take a crown of thorns, literally taking the actual industry to, to, to tie them together into a crown, to place them on Jesus' head. So now he's bleeding from cuts in his head. And again, this is what the doctors will say, is that if you get a cut on your skull, it will bleed all the more because there are many blood vessels in the skull, and sometimes you can, you, it's hard for that to stop bleeding. And what is, amazes me about this, they twist together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they begin to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews, and, as they, were, and they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And that's the part that always breaks me that they put this crown of thorn on his head and as they are beating him and mocking him, they're driving it deeper and deeper. The cuts are moving around. The book of Isaiah says he, his image was marred and disfigured beyond that of a man. And, and this, is the, this is before the crucifixion. 
And when they had mocked him, and this is the part that in some of the books, this is where they say this is where the pain would have really happened because as they, they mocked him, they then stripped the cloak off of him, ripping and exposing all those wounds once again. And again, more blood spilled. They put his own clothes on him and they let him out to crucify him. The blood loss from the flogging and the beating set the stage for the early onset of shock. And some of the doctors point to the fact that at this point, Christ is said in the Gospels to have started carrying the the support of the beam, about a 150-pound beam, to carry to the place of crucifixion. And the accounts, and John says he carried the beam, and in the other accounts it says that a man named Cyrus of, uh, 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 Simon of Cyrene carried it for him. And so what most likely happened is he began carrying it, collapsed under the weight of it, because his body at this point is just giving out. And so he needs help to carry it to the execution site. Jesus' body is shutting down, and we've not even gotten to the crucifixion. That's the verse. They led him out to crucify him. Crucifixion in the ancient world was considered the most horrific torture. Cicero called it a most cruel and ignominious punishment. It was not something that would be done in general. Generally, it was not something that would even be done to a Roman citizen. It was done for slaves. It was reserved for slaves and reserved for enemies of the state. And it was such an effective and and used torture because it primarily did two things. Number one, it was horrifically painful to to demonstrate to the individual and to all who watched the individual the supreme power of Rome and the penalty for being exposed to the wrath of the Roman Empire. We want... So when we do... When we do capital punishment in the West, we we do it as privately and as painlessly as possible. That's not how the people of the ancient world thought of public execution. They they had no concern for privacy or for it to be painless. They wanted the individual and for people associated with the individual to see exactly how painful it would be. The second reason for crucifixion would be is it was long and extended and protracted death. Uh, from the ancient world accounts, it, between four hours and four days it may take to crucify. This was, and it was public. They would, they would now, it's probably, it's, from one of the accounts I read, you know, when, on, on video when you see it, Jesus is lifted really, really, really high up. Likely what they're thinking is that, what most people who think and look into it is the cross was not actually that high off the ground because it's impractical, number one, to put somebody up that high. And that actually in Psalm 22, It speaks of dogs licking the wounds. That they're actually wild animals that would, I don't know the word, bother the person. And so that's why crucifixion was, well, it was was like a, a billboard, literally a billboard saying, do not mess with the supremacy of the Roman Empire. However, the process with Jesus, Jesus having gone through so much trauma, uh, seems to only take a few hours before his death. He'd been on the cross, the, the Bible tells us from um, 
the third to the ninth hour, he's on the cross. Or he's, he's dying on the cross. About six hours. And because Jesus died in a relatively short time, it has led some people to argue that he may not have been fully dead when they took him down from the cross. Maybe he just passed out. Maybe he was just in a coma. He's only on the cross for six hours. Some people stay for days. Yet two important things should be noted. noted. Number one, the, the Romans knew that the Romans, when they wanted somebody to stay on the cross for four days, they knew ways to do that. So if you wanted a person to stay for longer, you would, instead of nailing the wrists, you would, you would tie the arms onto the cross. And that would be one way in which the person's energy wouldn't be so depleted they could stay for longer. Another way would, and maybe sometimes you've seen this in pictures of crucifixion, another way is they would actually put a platform on the cross instead of nailing the feet, a small platform that you could stand on. Or sometimes they would put a platform under the hips so you could kind of rest. And so they knew how to extend it if they wanted to. But in all accounts of Jesus, both his hands and his feet were pierced. And so the Romans didn't want Jesus on the cross for a long time. They, they wanted death to come quickly. If you imagine Pilate, this is a nuisance for Pilate. He just wants Jesus to be done and out of the way. And second is that the next part is a soldier was actually sent to finish the job. They wanted Jesus down and finished with early. So in John 19, 31, for example, it says, It was the day of preparations. This is the day before our next high holy day. And so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. And so the soldiers came, and they broke the legs of the first and of the others who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. See, so when, you, when you're crucified, you normally just give, they don't actually know what kills you in crucifixion. Some of the doctors and the medical materials, this is where they have debates. What kills you in crucifixion? Is it just the, the overall manner of stress and your body just shuts down? Is it, do you, going to, do you go into shock? Is it that your, some people think Jesus' heart just ruptured? Uh, and many people think it's because you die because you, uh, you can't breathe any longer. That every time you have to take a breath, you have to pull yourself up. And then you, you sag down again, and at some point you just can't do that anymore. Whatever it is, what the Romans knew is if you broke the legs of the individual, they would die sooner. And so they come to, they come to, to, to break Jesus' legs, they break the legs of the other two, and they come to Jesus, they realize he's already dead. But what they do to make sure that he's already dead, and they don't do this to the others, this is to ensure death is they take a spear and they thrust it in Jesus's side and the medical journal speaks is probably between such and such rib and and definitely because of the the account of the blood and water spilling art it was most likely pierced right to the heart you do not survive this the Roman uh, the Romans had for crucifixion they had crucifixion they had specially trained soldiers for crucifixion I forget the Latin word that is called now but it was a group of five soldiers that were specialists in crucifixion. One of those five soldiers was a specialist in determining that the person had died. This was his job, and he was good at it. And he comes and he sees that Jesus is already dead, so he ensures, <laughs> he ensures he's not getting down off that cross. It's important to note there could be little room for error here. The doctor's writing in, the conclusion in the Journal of American Medical Association, that 1986 article, their conclusion, final paragraph, accordingly, interpretations based on the assumption that Jesus did not die on the cross appear to be at odds with modern 
medical knowledge. The medical implausibility of surviving crucifixion. Now, to be fair, there are reports of some in the ancient world surviving crucifixion. Um, Josephus, the historian Josephus, talks about, at one point, Josephus, uh, there's a rebellion, there's a revolt, and, uh, and the governor, uh, he crucifies everybody who's associated with this revolt. And Josephus finds out that three of his friends who were not associated with the revolt were actually caught up in like the dragnet, and they were being crucified with all these other people. And so Josephus runs to the governor and says, you have to pardon these three guys. These three guys did nothing wrong. And so the government says, okay, here's a letter. Pardoned, they're pardoned, go back. And so they go back, they get the guards to actually take two of the men, or all three of these men, down off the cross. And actually, Josephus records, they were given the best medical care. Right? This is the government making a mistake in execution. They take them down, they give them the best medical care, and Josephus records, two out of the three of his friends still died. This was not on the cross long. This was not... You know, no account of legs being broken, no accounts of spears being thrust in the side. This is the account of, you know, what we were, we were told, one of the details I saw in the Gospels this week I never noticed before, is that Jesus is remarked about dying on the cross at about the third hour in the afternoon. But it's not until the evening that Joseph of Arimathea goes to the Pilate and says, can we take the body down and bury him? So after Jesus dies, he's still on the cross for five to six hours. So that's what they do. They just leave him up there for a while. There's no way that Jesus survived this. Yet, that's only the medical implausibility, the rational implausibility of believing a battered man had beaten death. And this was actually first thought, at least in print, is from actually a, a person who does not believe that Jesus is God first gave this explanation. But I think it works. It's an amazing... Imagine that Jesus did somehow survive. Imagine that Jesus somehow went into this severe coma, that they thought he died, he hadn't really died, he was in a coma, they took him down from the cross, Joseph of Arimathea, they put him in a tomb, he's in the tomb for about a day, the cold air of the tomb somehow resuscitates him. And now imagine that somehow we are led to believe that this man, beaten, destroyed man, somehow wakes up from this coma. Somehow, with hands that are now still crippled from having the nerves severed in his hands, can, can remove the burial cloth. Somehow, he can go and somehow from the inside roll away whatever stone is placed in front of the tomb. Somehow, on pierced feet, he can now make his way out of the garden and walk however many kilometers he needed to walk. Somehow he has been beaten and blooded from his, from his head, from his back is just still raw, his hands and his feet still pierced. He's just out of a coma, and he knocks on Peter's door and says, I have beaten death. And we are led to believe that they saw that and said, wow, what a miracle. That, that when Thomas saw his tombs and put his hand and finger in his side, he said, he did not say, my Lord and my God in worship. He would have said, my Lord and my God in horror. And we're led to believe that, that this is what was the foundation, the pillar at which the church then took, you know, took territory over the Roman Empire. It's absurd. Another theory is I call the sociological implausibility of keeping a conspiracy silent. Another theory that's offered to explain the death of Christ, and this is almost a good theory at first, so don't read the thing yet. 
right? I see you guys reading it. I've, I forgot to put the animation on there. So, so here's the theory. We know that Jesus had some affluent followers. So perhaps Joseph of Arimathea or some of the other followers, maybe they bribed Pilate. Maybe they bribed Pilate in order to, 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 to get Jesus down from the cross quickly before he died. And then they presented Jesus as alive to the other followers and it was all a conspiracy. And, and now we're getting ahead of ourselves here, but maybe this is a better argument for next week. But not only does this view require us to believe that each of the Christian conspirators went to their death believing in something they knew to be untrue, but it also requires us to believe that Pilate and the rest of the authorities, after the church began preaching publicly that Jesus rose from the dead, that not even the authorities who knew about the conspiracy ever made a point to proclaim to anybody that these Christians were crazy, that these Christians were not just crazy, liars. If there was a conspiracy, you'd think Peter must have known about it, yet Peter went to his death proclaiming the resurrection of Christ. You don't die for a lie. You've heard that. But, but the, the manner of death that Peter went to is recorded in church history. He went to the death, crucified himself. And he said, I'm not worthy to be crucified in the manner of my Lord. And so the, record, the report is that Peter was crucified upside down. At any time, and I just told you the horror of crucifixion, at any time Peter could have come down off of his cross by saying, hey, just kidding everyone, we made it up. Yet all the followers of Jesus went to his death for that crucifixion. Chuck Colson was one of the President Richard Nixon's conspirators in the famous uh, Watergate scandal in the 70s. He was the first one to go to prison, actually, for obstruction of justice. And he became a Christian in prison partly because of his experience of trying to cover up the conspiracy. He writes in his autobiography, he says, I know the resurrection is a fact and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they'd seen Jesus raised from the dead and they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured it if it were not true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world and they couldn't keep a lie secret for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. He goes on in the broader context of that to say, look, we knew that if we let the secret go, we would be imprisoned if not executed for treason. We were motivated to keep the secret because if we didn't keep the secret, if we spilled it, we would face severe consequences. And he goes on to say, these guys, it's the exact opposite. They face severe consequences that they could have gotten out of had they just said, hey, we made it up. the sociological implausibility of keeping conspiracy silent. And then, and this is, this is probably what was most significant to the apostles as they proclaimed Jesus through the Roman Empire. It's the theological absurdity of a divine Messiah, of crucifying a divine Messiah. The apostles didn't spend much time defending that Jesus died on the cross but they spent much time explaining what the meaning of Jesus' death on the cross was. The cross was the central tenet of the apostles' preaching. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I purpose to know nothing among you other than Jesus Christ and him 
crucified. I love it. You know, a couple weeks ago, we, we looked at, did Jesus really live? And somebody said, Paul was not interested in anything of the historical Jesus. Paul spends entire chapters of the Bible speaking of the crucifixion of Jesus. And the absurdity that it is. Yes, he even recognizes this is absurd that the man we call God was, was crucified. It had to be explained because not only do you have to explain how it was possible that a man you worshipped as divine had died, which is theologically absurd because gods don't die, but how that he could have died on a cross, the most horrible, painful, torturous, and humiliating form of execution possible. The Romans knew the horror of the cross. To them, it would have been absurd that a God would die on a cross. That's why in Philippians, Paul says he suffered, he became obedient to his servant, even to death, yes, even to death on a cross. And to the Jews, it was a curse to have been hung on a tree in the manner of crucifixion. Yet the apostles proclaimed the crucified Christ knowing full well how absurd it must have sounded to the Greeks and the Jews, but they preached it because it had happened, and because it had happened, they reasoned that God's wisdom must be wiser than our wisdom. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, which happens to be one of the earliest sources, earlier than any of the Gospels, this is one of the earliest accounts of the crucifixion. Paul writes, For the word of, cro of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. In other words, Paul says, this isn't something we made up because we thought, hey, that's a cool picture of a Messiah. No one anticipated a crucified Savior. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God, the weakness of God, the weakness of God on the cross is stronger than men. And what does Paul mean by that? To those who are being saved, this is the power of God. Well, he explains later in the book why Christ dies. He says in chapter 15, I, I re remind you, brothers, of the gospel, this good news I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Here's what I've heard, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. See, see, the apostles were now explaining the significance of the crucifixion. And, and, and it's very simple in how he says, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. First, the death of Christ was foretold. The death of Christ was foretold. Paul understands that what he has seen, what the apostles saw, and what he's received from those eyewitnesses was not without its contextual significance, but that the scriptures of Israel foretold of the coming Messiah and his sufferings and his death. So for example, Isaiah, beautiful chapter, Isaiah 53. You can't almost hardly read this chapter without weeping. Written 700 years before Christ. 
Isaiah writes, Surely this servant of God, in the context, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced, pierced, pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He goes on in that same chapter to say he was assigned uh, to death with wicked men, but given a place in a tomb with the rich men. Speaking of Jesus' death and burial. That this death of Christ was foretold. This is why when John the Baptist, the forerunner to Jesus Christ, saw him for the first time, he explains who Jesus is by virtue of who the, what the Old Testament's point and picture of redemption would be. And he sees Jesus and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This understanding that God had ingrained in the Jewish people for hundreds of years that for sin, the payment and the punishment for sin to appease the wrath of God is the death of the one who sins or of an acceptable substitute. That's what the whole system at the temple was to illustrate that death leads to sin of the individual who sins or of an acceptable substitute. And so the Jewish people had been trained for millennia to not approach God without a sacrifice for their own sin. And they would come to the, they'd come to the temple and the priests would make the offering and now you could approach God. And John the Baptist looks at Jesus and says, here he is, finally, behold, here is the Lamb of God, the one we've been waiting for who will take away the sin of the world. And Paul says, I I gave to you what I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. So according to the Scriptures, his death was foretold. But according to his Scriptures, Christ would die as a substitute. That Lamb of God, that punishment that brought us peace was laid upon him. That that the significance of Christ's death is, yes, about how a holy one could die for the unholy. How the righteous could die for the unrighteous. How the perfect could die for the imperfect. How the pure could die for the impure. That death was facing all of us and Jesus died as a gift and as an expression of his love. That's how the apostles explained his death. They explained it by love. They said, this is how we know what love is, that while we were still sinners, while we were still under the wrath of God, God gave to die for us and for our place, and that is how we know what love is. Jesus himself said, what greater love is there than a man should lay down his life for his friends? And so the death of Christ was foretold. The death of Christ was substitutionary. It was an expre- the death of Christ was an expression of God's love. And the death of Christ, within the death of Christ, is the power to save. Is the power to save. This is why Isaiah says, by his wounds we are healed. And you've got to understand, because I grew up nominally Catholic, right? I grew up hearing some of these stories. I grew up, and I went to catechism, and I grew up on Christmas. I, I, the only times I really went to church was Christmas, Good Friday, and Easter. 
But on Christmas, Good Friday, and Easter, that's what you hear, right? Jesus, God has come in the flesh. Good Friday, Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Easter, Jesus rose again from the dead. But never, never did I hear or understand how the death of Christ applied to me. That it was not just that Jesus died for sin somewhere out there. It was that Jesus Christ died for the personal sin of each one of us. Myself included. That it was for me that he died. That it was my, as one of the songs we sing, it was my sin that held him there until it all was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. And that there's a personal nature to the death of Christ. Is that not enough just to say, yeah, I believe it was a historical event. The significance of the death of Christ will change your life. When you see, number one, first, I am the sinner. I am the sinner for which Christ died. He died for sin. He died for sinners like me. Secondly, turning from my sin and turning to His substitutionary, satisfactory atonement as our only hope. That I could do nothing to appease you. I could do nothing to cleanse my own sin. But you, Jesus, in, the, in your own death, have provided a means by which I might be healed, forgiven, freed, redeemed. And clinging to His work as an act of His grace, as an expression of His love, as our only hope in life and death. If you're here today, that's my prayer for you. That you just not just know intellectually that yes, I believe that Christ died on Good Friday the day we celebrate is Good Friday. But you might have a deep understanding resonating in your soul right now why Christ died. And the next week we will celebrate again, yes, the hope and the victory of His resurrection. I mean, if you're here today, you have not yet made your amends with God, you haven't yet bowed your heart, your life in front of Him. I said, yes, God, I know I'm a sinner. I know, I understand now. It is my sin that killed your son. Please forgive my sin. Please come into my life and change me. Today, I, I pray for you that you would become a follower of Christ, that your life heretofore would be one of discipleship, would be one of following this one who God has sent to die this horrific death that you might live. Heavenly Father, that is my prayer. My prayer is that we would see in the death of Jesus not only a historical event, but our only hope. God, that we can so easily condemn those who beat Christ. We can so easily condemn those who condemned Christ. We can so easily condemn those who, who pierced Christ. Yet the Scriptures tell us it was for our sin that he died. I pray for those who are here today who are not yet followers of you. They might see today the love of God, what you have done to pour out and to display your love towards sinners even while displaying your wrath and anger towards sin. I pray that we as a church may be confident to proclaim this Easter your death, your burial, your resurrection as our only hope for life and death.
It's in your name we pray. Amen.